Let's just pause and take that reading in for a moment, shall we, before I very sadly preach on something else. Why don't we pray? We bless and praise you, our Heavenly Father, for the awe-inspiring vision of the risen Christ Jesus. We praise you that you have revealed with all wisdom and understanding the mystery of your will, which you purposed in Christ, to bring to unit, unity to all things in heaven and on earth under him. And Father, we thank you that among those things you have placed under Christ's feet, you've included us as members of his body. And we pray that as we listen to your word together now, by that word you would draw us further into that body, make us more like Christ our head, and strengthen us to live in the hope of his return. Amen. Just a few books back in Paul's collection of letters to the end of 1 Corinthians. Last Tuesday, we looked at the first half of 1 Corinthians 16, where Paul expands on his instruction to give ourselves to the work of the Lord by showing the Corinthians last week what gospel partnership looks like. Now, partnership is the perfect example of doing the Lord's work because it encapsulates the whole letter. Uh, this was my attempt at a diagram from last week, and yes, you laughed at me then too. <laughs> so how does partnership reflect this? Well, just like the Lord Jesus in his sufferings and death, we partner with God in weakness, with the strength that God provides. And we partner with one another in person because by his death, Christ has created a body for himself and he's equipped it through the Spirit to do the work of the Lord, not as individuals, but as partners who dance to God's feet together. And we partner globally because Jesus has shown us the ultimate end of our partnership, the defeat of death, the resurrection of a new humanity to an imperishable kingdom. So today, as we look at verses 12 to 24, we encounter a bunch of names. Uh, we often race over lists like this because they feel so occasional, don't they? You know, personal mates of the Corinthians doesn't feel like it has the same general and abiding significance as, as the rest of the letter. But Paul reminded the Corinthians of these people for exactly the same reason that he left their names in Scripture for us to read today. These people are illustrations and models of the work of the Lord. Right? They're here basically to inspire us. Above all, they're here to show us that giving yourself to the work of the Lord is something that will happen when and only when faith and hope stir love into action. Now, these people are inspiring because in the end, their lives are all about love. So the title of today's sermon, if I had one, would be The Work of the Lord and Love. So let's begin by reading verses 12 to 20. Now about our brother Apollos, 
I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia and that they've devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. I was glad when Stephanas, Fortunatus and Achaius arrived because they've supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Apollos is the first of seven people Paul names in verses 12 to 20. Uh, but before we look at their names and the lives that they represent, there's a bit of conflict to deal with in verse 12. Right? I strongly urged Apollos to go to you. Uh, he was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity or perhaps when the time is right. Sounds like a bit of oversharing, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but remember how the Corinthians formed rival fan clubs around their favorite leaders, right? Apollos, the brilliant public speaker, had extremely vocal groupies. And they would be very keen to know when he was going to come back and visit. So Paul decides that the Corinthians need to be led in on a recent conflict in the staff team. Right? Paul wanted to send Apollos back to Corinth, and the Corinthians actually needed to see his lack of jealousy in this. But they also needed to know that their hero refused to come back and be treated like a hero. I think that Apollos was waiting until the Corinthians could show a bit more maturity. And the reason I think this is actually the string of commands that Paul suddenly comes out with in, in the next verse. I noticed something when I was working on this sermon, which I haven't had a chance to run past my esteemed New Testament colleagues, uh, so perhaps I could run it past you all. <laughs> See what you think. Um, I reckon verses 13 and 14 recapitulate the whole book. Right, here they are. The four commands in verse 13 have a military flavor. Right, with the first two defensive, the next two more attacking. Be on your guard means don't fall asleep on the watch. Right? And stand firm means hold your ground in battle. Standing firm in the faith, it means protecting the truth of the gospel, holding on what you were first taught about Jesus. It's all about faith. Be courageous and strong, on the other hand, means act like a warrior going forwards into battle. Something, actually, that phrase that God often said to Joshua and the Israelites as they pressed forward to take the promised land. So if the first two words are about standing firm in faith, the next two are about pressing forward in hope. Which leaves verse 14 to complete the trio, do everything in love. See how this is a summary of the book, right? Uh, here it is on my drawing. <laughs> Just in case. It begins by grounding faith in the past. Right? The wisdom of God revealed in the message of the cross. 
It ends by looking forward to the future promised land. The death of death, life unending. And the middle of the book looks around in the present to the body of Christ and the world at large and shows us the work waiting to be done right now. The work of the Lord boils down to love. And not just any love, but the love Jesus showed us when he died for us. And here's the thing. Imitating the love of Christ is just about the hardest work there is. Certainly too hard to do unless it is fueled by faith and hope. And that's why verse 14 follows verse 13. Look back in faith, look forward in hope, so that you will have the power to do everything in love. Which brings us back to Apollos and his visit. Right? The day he can return without stirring up divisions is the day when the Corinthians' faith and hope has fueled love. And what do you get? What do you get when love stirs into action? What you get is you get people who give themselves to the work of the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean for your love to be fueled by faith and hope? What does it look like? Well, Moore College Chapel, let me introduce you to the Pauline Evangelical Church, Ephesus. A bunch of their members are mentioned in these verses, and I'd like to tell you their story. So, story starts, chronologically at least, with Aquila and Priscilla. They were a Jewish couple who turned to follow Jesus in their native city of Rome, and they grew a church in their house until the emperor expelled all the Jews and they were forced out. Here's a map. You know how I love them. <laughs> they moved to Corinth, and when Paul arrived, they invited him to stay with them for 18 months while he planted a church. And when Paul left Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila packed their things and went with him to set up house a third time in Ephesus. Well, Paul headed straight to Jerusalem, but Priscilla and Aquila started a church again in their house. I presume they had kids, maybe grandkids as well, but they left family networks and they made a new church family only to leave that family behind to make another one. And that, my friends, is what it looks like when love is fueled by hope. Now, to be honest, I don't know whether they would have been prepared to leave Rome if God hadn't forcibly uprooted them, but they clearly embraced their new circumstances without bitterness, and they learned what it meant to be like Abraham, who lived like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Right? Driven by the hope of the risen Jesus, Priscilla and Aquila sat light to this world. Now I know other Priscillas and Aquilas, uh, as I'm sure you do, and they always inspire me. So let me just encourage you to be inspired by the Priscillas and Aquilas that you know. Let them inspire you never to put down such deep roots that you couldn't leave everything behind in imitation of Christ's love and for the sake of a better country. Priscilla and Aquila. Well, the next person we meet is Apollos. 
Polis was a brilliant Jewish scholar and philosopher from Egypt. And he'd heard enough about Jesus to figure out that he must be Israel's promised Messiah. So he set off traveling from synagogue to synagogue, giving public lectures and debates. When he got to Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila heard him speak. They realized that he hadn't heard the whole gospel yet. So they invited him back home and explained the rest. And then they sent him to Corinth because the Corinthian Jews who had rejected Jesus were now attacking the Christian faith and the church was a lot of trouble. So in comes Apollos, razor sharp mind wielded by silver tongue to cut down falsehoods with the word of God. If Priscilla and Aquila personify hope, then Apollos, I think, personifies faith. But not because, not just because he defends it. Because he never gets drunk on his fame. He humbly allows himself to be corrected by Priscilla and her husband. When the Corinthians form a fan club, he goes back to Ephesus. Apollos is a hero of the faith not just because of his words, but because his life displays the marks of the crucified Jesus, of the Lord who made himself nothing. How rare and inspiring is that? You know, the celebrity who steps out of the limelight so as not to cast shade on Jesus? When did you even last see that? Now, praise God, there are plenty of modern-day Apollos's too, but perhaps they're a bit harder to spot and make for less dramatic sermon illustrations than the celebrities that our Christian church and culture loves to promote. So I'm not going to throw any stones today at fake apollosis because um, I'm painfully conscious of my own spiritual pride. And I'm painfully grateful to God for skewering my ego with reminders of my own deep failings and unworthiness. Maybe if I could give you one little piece of advice from the vantage point of my extreme age. <laughs> it would be this. Place the wisdom of the body above your own wisdom. And place the Christian qualities of others above your own qualities. And in your heart of hearts, you may disagree, but just do it and let God show you the truth. That's the first step to becoming an Apollos. Well, finally, Stephanus. You may have noticed him quietly in Corinth this whole time, left behind when Apollos and Paul returned to Ephesus. He was Corinthian born and bred. He was Paul's first convert there, and he didn't move anywhere. But following Jesus changed his whole world. He and his entire household began to devote themselves to serving their new family. We don't know if the church met in his house, but verse 15 shows us Stephanus and his family assigning themselves not to be the boss, but to be servants. He and his household show us what love looks like. Right, the love they show the body of Jesus is a mark of the love they have for Jesus himself. Now, Paul holds these people up as models of people who have given themselves fully to the work of the Lord 
people whose love is fueled by faith and hope. And these are heroes of the faith, not because of their strength or wisdom, but because of their reliance on God's strength and wisdom. And just like them, any leader whose weakness is visible, whose Christ-like dependence on God is visible, that is a leader to be cherished, to be submitted to, and to be emulated. Well, the very last model 1 Corinthians offers us is Paul himself. In verse 21, Paul has taken the pen from the professional scribe who'd been taking his dictation, and he adds some final words in his own handwriting. Verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. I reckon these words feel a bit like your mum sticking her head out the car window as she and your dad drive off for a week away to yell, whatever you do, don't forget to feed the dog. Or, you know, whatever your mum's most important thing was. For Paul, that one most important thing to yell out the window was love. Love was what he called the most excellent way. Feels kind of uncomfortable, doesn't it? The ads are curse in verse 22, but it's a, a small window onto his feelings. Uh, he is so jealously protective of this church, um, I think because they caused him more grief than any other church he pastored. Right? Despite many letters and many visits, this church rarely demonstrated repentance. And for every step forward, there was a step backward as well. And in the face of all that heartache, there's one last detail that I find deeply touching in this letter. You know, Paul's predictable sign-off in his letters is, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, but in this letter alone, he adds that P.S., my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. You know, the Corinthian church was utterly soul-destroying. It was Paul's thorn in the spirit that God gave him the one gift he needed to stay committed to them. He filled Paul with a deep love for this most unlovable bunch. Remember at the end of his luminous chapter on love, Paul says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And such beautiful words But don't be deceived. Loving, unlovable people. And let's face it, that's all of us, at least some of the time. Loving, unlovable people is hard work. And loving them with the humble, self-giving love of Jesus is very hard indeed. We can only do it by looking back to the cross in faith and forward to the resurrection in hope. We can only do it by dancing to God's feet because love is his work, not ours. One of the things I love about this place is that I can look around my brothers and sisters here at college and be reminded that we are doing the Lord's work together with fellow workers who love us back 
who inspire us by making Christ visible in their lives. So therefore, as Hebrews says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith.